Today, we're catching up with Brent Rosen, president and CEO of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, home of Tip of the Tongue. How has COVID affected the museum, and what are the plans for 2022? We're catching up. It's on Tip of the Tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Brent Rosen, the president and CEO of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. That's also our home base. So welcome, Brent Liz, hello. So good to be back on the podcast. It has been a long time. It has been. It has been. I try not to repeat myself too much. Well, and I, and, and I get it. I mean, I, I am always here. So anytime you need a plug, I'm, I'm your guy. So now that we are doing this taping at the end of 2021, what are we looking forward to in terms of the museum and 2022? What a good question. Because it's sort of, <laughs> what is there to look forward to, Liz? First of all, I think almost before talking about, you know, what to look forward to next year, I feel like it would be remiss not to just sort of recap some of the fun we've been having over the last couple. <laughs> because I, I think the biggest thing we have to look forward to is maybe less of what we have been doing for the last 18 months. Um, it certainly seems like vaccines are starting to, you know, really take effect. The new variants, you know, hopefully, knock on wood, they come and go. And that we start to sort of get a feeling for, you know, treating the pandemic as something that is just there to be dealt with more than something that, you know, really can throw a wrench in the operations at any given time. And and so what I'm looking forward to, you know, both personally and professionally at the museum, beyond the, the fun stuff we'll talk about in a minute, is the idea that, you know, in the same way that like if you have a headache, you take Advil. I, you know, hopefully we get to a point where if there is a COVID wave, everybody puts their masks back on and, and does some different things and sort of treats it as an acute thing. But a headache doesn't end your world. It, right. it doesn't stop you from, you know, going to work and being productive or, or being able to enjoy time with your family or being able to gather for a holiday. And, and if we can get to a point where we start to treat, not even start to treat, but COVID itself gets to a point where it can be treated mm-hmm. more like an endemic disease and not like a raging pandemic. I think that gives us at the museum the ability to to start to think more about, you know, how do we do our normal thing? But it's not just us. It's the whole world. People can't travel. People can't be with their, their loved ones. People can't do the things that they want to do right now because of this pandemic. But it seems over the last few months, we're starting to get a handle on sort of what do we need to do in order for it to be more like the flu, where you catch the flu, you stay home. You get a flu vaccine then you don't worry about it quite as much. If you get it anyway, it's not going to hurt you too badly. I think that's what I'm looking forward to. And and that may be optimistic, and obviously I'm not a public health expert, but it certainly seems like we're getting in that direction. So what are the signs that make you think that way? Well, and the vaccinations are, people are, the, the holdouts are getting smaller and smaller. They're getting louder, but they're fewer and fewer. And it seems like our elected officials and the people who are kind of, you know, in charge of what does and doesn't happen 
have realized that, that the lockdowns may be, you know, not totally necessary as long as people are behaving. And and behavior is something that so where I guess I'm getting more I don't know excited isn't the right word, but we seem to be learning how to behave. And so, do you think that you're seeing numbers get better uh, in terms of admissions and the number of people visiting the museum, yes. say from a year ago? And, and that's and that's definitely what we're seeing. And it really started in the summer, where you could tell that people with children, in particular had been, you know, almost closed off from the world for about a year by the point we got to June, July of, of this year. And what I noticed was a lot of people not purchasing museum admission, but purchasing what they call a go pass, which is something available here in New Orleans and a lot of other cities where uh, you pay one price for a go pass and then you have access to many, many attractions. And I, I was joking with some of the staff that that, that shows the hand of a mother <laughs> because unless there is a mother involved, no one is pre-purchasing those tickets. No one is doing that kind of planning. You know, maybe not necessarily a mother, but the hand of someone in charge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, when I travel, if I had to think about going to a museum, I, I know where it is. And if I get there, I get there. But if I end up having too much wine at lunch and not getting there, that's fine, too. I, I don't really make plans in that way. And so seeing what definitely was a lot of families with children a lot of people who'd gotten into their, their big car from somewhere, you know, within driving distance of New Orleans and just said, let's get out of the house and go somewhere fun. And we saw a lot of that. And then that started to started to get impacted a little when the Delta variant came through. Mm-hmm. But more than anything, Hurricane Ida in, at the end of August and in September, I mean, that knocked the whole city out for a month. So it, was, so it was hard to tell, were we making progress or not? Because we were making progress until another whole thing came <laughs> right. in. It was and, just a different catastrophe. Just a different catastrophe. <laughs> but uh, it's been a big year for catastrophes in New Orleans. But it has been a, but even after the hurricane and then the slow kind of, you know, rebuild of the people coming, by October things started to kind of right themselves. And, and into November and now December, the museum itself is doing, you know, numbers that are as good or better than they were in 2019 for the month of December. So for what it's worth, it seems like people are feeling safe enough to move around the country to bring, you know, their relatives, whether they're young or old, you know, out and about. It is not just, you know, 30-year-olds running around the museum. It, it's, it's all ages, all types of people. And there's just a general sense that even if it's not, even if things aren't over, they're different. And, and then that difference is where I see the hope because it's, it's sort of we all have to change our behavior some in order to, you know, live our lives. But that's becoming now a known thing. It's becoming something people can adjust to and actually do. So also, I think that museums are relatively safe or at least perceived as relatively safe because you seldom walk into a museum and find yourself overwhelmed by the number of people in it. It's not like going to a carnival or something where there are lots of people close together. I think that's a great point, too, in, in the same way that in a museum, and, and ours is not unique in the sense that it is in a big building with very high ceilings, and 15,000 square feet is, is sort of our indoor footprint. And when you think about it, 15,000 square feet is huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, restaurants that are having you know, struggles, the actual dining area might be 1,500 square feet. So the amount of room that we have and, and, you know, to have 150 people in the museum at 15,000 square feet, you can socially distance without any problem at all. Right. So it really does, you know, change the, the calculation, especially if people, you know, if people are wearing masks 
in this building, I don't think there's any way to really catch COVID. Now, I mean, sure, you know, if you're not wearing masks and there's people who, you know, aren't vaccinated coming through and people who have symptoms and all that, then, yeah, obviously, you know, things can happen. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the precautions and the protocols that the museum has in place, in addition to the the overall size and, and spacing of things, we are in a better position than a lot of other public accommodations, you know, like a movie theater, where you have to sit inches from other people in a right. movie theater in order to have that experience. And, and we can spread you out pretty, pretty far here. Another thing, too, I, I wanted to ask you about has to do with tourism in general. So have you found that the people who are visiting are independent travelers or are they coming for conventions or meetings? It's been primarily independent travelers. And, you know, you, and that's another point that, you know, in a different city, this calculation might be different. Where if we were in somewhere like Birmingham, Alabama, or Atlanta, or New York, and maybe not even New York, but Birmingham and Atlanta are better examples, where those cities are sort of self-sustaining in the sense that whatever the population is there, they have a commensurate amount of activities and restaurants and public attractions. Whereas in a place like New Orleans, we're only about 600,000 people, but we have, in a good year, 12 or 13 million visitors. So much of the nice things that we have are being paid for by people who are coming into New Orleans from elsewhere and spending their money and their time here. So in a place like Atlanta, you know, as soon as they say all clear, everything just sort of goes back to normal. Whereas in New Orleans, they could wave the all clear flag tomorrow, and we'd still probably be six months away from the usual tourism business that we're used to. So as of now, we are seeing much more individuals, families, and leisure travelers. We are not yet seeing the kind of business travel that we would expect in New Orleans in general. And it is reflecting, I think, in the, the museum, maybe not as much in admissions, but definitely in events. And, you know, the museum, again, it's big. We have multiple kitchens and, and lots of space. So we are a, a very attractive event rental space. Mm -hmm. And especially when it's a food business, you know, type group coming in. And, and I know that we had the, the national coin operated vending machine conference not too long ago. We had the national corn conference. We had the national, the retail stores, the convenience stores. Mm -hmm. These conferences happen in New Orleans and the audiences for that overlay extremely nicely with people interested in, in what we have here at SoFab. And so by not having those conferences, there's no way to get the potential after-hours business for, you know, the bar or for an event rental or for anything else. And so, again, as we continue to kind of clear through some of the pandemic, the, the individual travelers that we are seeing here in New Orleans will be joined by the business travelers. And then that's really where I think you can say that, that we've kind of turned the corner is when, you know, somebody like the National Corn Growers Association calls and has their 400-person you know, activation here at SoFab. And then we know, okay, we're good. Things are back. Things are normal. And who knows? Because it, it you know, could be in six months. It could be another year. Unfortunately, we're, we're doing well enough on the sort of daytime business that our, our nighttime event business isn't essential, but it's certainly better. Well, that's the benefit of having multiple profit centers instead of just one, so that if something is having a problem for whatever reason – the other parts can kind of compensate. Correct. And and we really have been fortunate that, you know, we have many arms and in, in, as a museum like, like the one that we have where we offer cooking classes, we offer kids' education, we offer adult education, we have a bar, we have a teaching kitchen and a professional kitchen and, and a number of other, you know, 
outlets where we can have different people interacting with us. And that's beyond the exhibits and just the regular coming to see the museum. Mm-hmm. And so that does give us an ability to sort of spread the, I don't want to say risk, but spread the, the sort of challenges of COVID across lots of little mini businesses so that during the time that our um, events have gone down, we have seen an increase in people taking cooking classes, but they're coming in groups of two or three. They're not renting the whole class, you know, as a group of 20 and, and bringing in right. a corporate group. Right. But it doesn't seem to matter right now. And so, you know, where I'm, again, hopeful is that by mid-next year, if we can get the old business we used to have plus the business we have now, then we really do kind of bounce back from the pandemic strong. So you do feel that you've developed new businesses, new aspects of business during the pandemic. Well, and I think maybe we'll use that as an opportunity to transition to what we're excited about (laughs) about next year, Liz, rather than kind of just do a laundry list. I I think Mm -hmm. there's two or three big things that are really exciting that SOFAB has that we did not before. And and the biggest one, and, and this is crazy, but in 2019, which now is almost three years ago, <laughs> I sat down with our, our former restaurant tenant who decided that he had had um, just too much going on and operating two restaurants at the same time, wasn't working, and wanted to get out of the lease here. And we looked at the room that had been a restaurant and said this would be perfect as more gallery space. That deal all got done by, I think we got handed the keys February 1st, 2020, And then within three weeks, the world shut down. So as of today, unless you've come to see the museum in the last six or seven months, you have not seen our Louisiana kitchen and gallery. And the Louisiana kitchen and gallery is really a unique space for us to have at the museum because it does have a full commercial kitchen that used to be a a very fine restaurant. And then it also has the bar from the old restaurant. And the bar is particularly unique. It is a Brunswick bar from the 1840s that is the third oldest bar in New Orleans. It was the th- from the third oldest restaurant in Our New Orleans. third oldest restaurant, which, mm-hmm. you know, as far as I'm concerned, makes it the third oldest bar in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, that is in that room as well. And what we have added is a chef and residency program to go along with this new kitchen and bar. And so not only do we have all of our Louisiana-specific exhibits, our great collection of things uh, about Chef Leah Chase, all of our po'boys and pralines and coffee and all those things that people, you know, love about New Orleans – That's there on display, but now we have actual people in the kitchen cooking regularly. And what that allows for our visitors is, you know, the opportunity to sample things, to taste things, to talk to food professionals about what they cook, why they cook it, what their influences are, where they've been. And and that's a really neat thing because in a food museum, you know, the subject is perishable. And so it's, it's difficult to preserve food in any way you know, for people to experience. But if we're serving food and able to have people come in and experience food, you know, this gives us that ability that we didn't have before. And then layer that on with the ability to, I mean, you could get a drink at the museum, but it came from a restaurant bar. Now that we are operating the bar, the cocktail program is really reflective of what we have here at the museum. So at our bar, we'll have an absinthe drip. And we will be one of two places in New Orleans that will actually provide that service, even though New Orleans is sort of the absinthe hotbed of the United <laughs> States. We're it, along with our Bellapoc. And so that's a very neat, unique thing. And we have an absinthe gallery at the museum. So now someone can come and look at our absinthe gallery, read about absinthe, learn about absinthe. And as they develop, a, ooh, I wonder what absinthe tastes like, we no longer have to send them home with no idea. Now we can say, oh, come to the bar. And if you have three friends, we'll do the full, we'll do a whole absinthe presentation, you know, with the four fountain, four drip fountain. 
And that's really neat. Again, where else can you do that in New Orleans, you know, and then get the history behind it and the culture behind it and all of that. So the Chefs in Residency, it's it's a team called Luncheon. It's Camille Staub and Colleen Allerton and then Bronwyn Wyatt, who does Bayou St. Cake. She is our other chef in residence. And between the three of them, there's nothing they can't do. It's cakes and pastries and savory things and, and all sorts of just delicious stuff. It's been wonderful having them because – I've gotten to taste a lot of the stuff they've been <laughs> testing. But I'm excited for our visitors to be able to come in and actually interact with working food professionals in New Orleans. But, and not just, you know, good working professionals, but really neat people. So that's one thing that is sort of new. And it, it's, it's crazy that it's new, even though it's almost two years old. But it is still new. Another, another exciting change we've been able to have at the museum that a lot of people have not yet seen is a new exhibit that we have on the birthplace of brunch here in New Orleans. New Orleans is is well known as being a a food town and an exciting place to eat. People don't really understand that in the 1850s, a new brunch was invented here in New Orleans. It started out as a a sort of blue-collar working-class meal for the butchers who would finish their third shifts at the French market and, you know, be done at 10 or 11 in the morning and just be famished. You know, they've had a little bit of French bread, maybe some brandy. And, you know, what do they go to eat? So Madame Begay was married to one of the butchers, and so she had her restaurant do a butcher's breakfast every day at 11. It was a five-course meal full of alcohol and <laughs> leftovers from the French market butchers who would bring it over and have them cook it. And over time, that just kind of grew and grew. Most of the famous New Orleans restaurants at some point or another either dabbled in or truly invented new ways of doing brunch between Brennan's, which is famous for breakfast at Brennan's, or Commander's Palace, or... Galatoire's, any of the, the sort of old New Orleans restaurants whose names you know, one of the things that they're most popular for is, is serving that sort of multi-course brunch-style meal really any time of the day. But in the old days, things were much more regimented in the early days of industrialization. So just the idea of an all-day cafe is very modern. The idea that you could eat not at 9 or at 5 is, is sort of new. So in the 1850s when brunch came about, it took about 30 years before it had gone basically worldwide in appeal. And was it, was it called brunch? Um, it was called the butcher's breakfast at first. I think the portmanteau may be from Great Britain. I don't believe that we came up with the, the brunch name as much as it was sort of the, the 11 o'clock breakfast. Mm-hmm. And uh, the British, I think, gave us the name brunch. So we'll, we'll give them credit for that. But the concept is 100% ours. <laughs> And so don't we also have some new things going in our cooking classes? Yes, and that is the, that's the final exciting thing. Thank you for, uh, well, maybe not the final, but at least the one we'll talk about today. We could do this all day to talk about <laughs> exciting things. Dee Levine has been a member of SoFab's family for five-plus years at this point. She started out uh, with us. She's a chef, and she went to the CIA and in New York and worked in that area for a while. But she's from New Orleans, is a local, and... She came back to New Orleans to start her own food business, and one of the programs we have at SoFab is a McElhenney Family Foundation scholarship sponsorship for um, food professionals to use our kitchen free of charge. And Dee was the first of the entrepreneurs we were able to find to give the kitchen space to, and she used it to build her business. It was, it was primarily cupcakes and delivery items for sort of like corporate gifts or uh, things for your significant other chocolate-covered strawberry bouquets, things like that. And it was, it was really going great. And he kind of continued to expand. And then she asked, you know, would it be possible for me to do more at the museum? 
And this was right about the time the pandemic hit. So we put kind of a, well, let's talk about that in a few months. And, and then a few months turned into about six months. And, and then it got to be the end of last year. And, and what we started to talk about was that D is African-American. And since Lena Richard, who is probably the earliest of New Orleans' female celebrity chefs in the 1940s, there has not been a female African-American-owned culinary program in New Orleans. Um, right now, I think there's five culinary schools. And of the five, I don't think all of them are even actually run by New Orleanians. <laughs> and so what Dee really you know, had in her mind was, this is, this is the food that I grew up with. It's the food that I know the best. It's food that, that is really a part of me. And I want to share that with people, and I want them to be able to experience it. And so what we developed was, it's almost a joint venture, I would call it, where the museum itself is providing, you know, the venue, obviously, some of the other resources, cutting boards, knives, that type of thing. And then Dee is running her cooking school out of it as, you know, something in between kind of a tenant and a partner. And it's really kind of neat because she has almost full autonomy to decide what she wants to do, how she wants to do it, and, and what size her classes will be, and, and all of that. But then, you know, we have the ability to then have visitors who are coming from all over the world visit the museum and then experience our, our culinary traditions firsthand in such a way. And then the museum staff gives a tour halfway through class. So everybody is sort of doing their own expertise within the relationship, but it's allowing us to do so much more than we could before with, with culinary education because we now have not only a wonderful, you know, culinary, wonderfully culinarily trained person who, you know, has this food in her bones, but Dee is also just delightful. She is so sweet and so much fun, and people just respond to her in such an amazing way that, I mean, people leave the museum raving. And the five-star reviews keep coming, and everything has just been really, really fun. And the best part is we have been doing it against the backdrop of a global pandemic and still succeeding. So I have a good feeling that as things continue to normalize and, and things get a little bit more um, easy to do, we really didn't get started with this until June, July. And then, as we said a minute ago, we had the Delta wave, <laughs> then a hurricane, and didn't get back on until later in October. And so, you know, for most people, again, this is brand new. If you have never taken a class at SOFAB, it's new. If you've taken a class at SOFAB, it is also new because the program is different and the menus are different. The recipes are different, but also just the, the overall outlook is different. It's much more inclusive and much more about learning the history of the food of New Orleans and the people behind the history of the food of New Orleans than it is about executing the dish perfectly. There's plenty of places you can go to learn how to make, like, duck a l'orange or, or whatever it is. But we are the only place you can go and actually learn the differences between Cajun and Creole cuisine and where those differences come from and then how those differences present themselves now in the present even though they're really distinctions that have become, you know, over the last 300 years, very muddled. Uh, and in the idea of what is Cajun and what is Creole. So just having a class where you can pull that apart and start to understand where it all fits in and, and who is a Cajun and who is a Creole and what does that actually mean, it, it's really neat. And, and, and it's experience. And, and I think as, a, as museums in general move forward into this new future of, of who knows what, it's our job to provide experiences. People have learned they can stay home and do lots of stuff. There is great culinary content on Netflix. 
So if you've got to put on pants and, and even YouTube, even YouTube, yeah. So if you've got to put on pants and get your act together to come and see <laughs> us, we've got to give you something that you can't get playing around on YouTube or watching a documentary on Netflix. So what else? What else is is there to look forward to in twenty twenty two? Any new exhibits that are coming? Any new big events that are planned? Yeah, you're gonna edit this, right? Wait, yeah. Do you want to, should we? Do we want to talk about African American? Do we want to get into all that? Just because it may be a little perspective. I'm thinking it's not coming until next year. Oh, really? Well, yeah. If they can't open. They can't open, yeah. yeah I can definitely edit all <laughs> yeah, this that, out. Yeah, that's why I, I was yeah. saying you can mute me so we don't have to go through all of this. Or um, I will – I think I'm going to talk about – oh, we'll talk about whiskey. What we'll about, talk, we'll talk mostly programming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about the Filipinos? Oh, and, yeah. Let's get them in, too. I yeah. forgot about them. Yeah. All right, well, you're programming in Filipinos. Okay. Ask me the question again. Okay. It's going to make it easier for you to edit. Okay. Pause, yeah, for, a pause for a second. So, Brent, besides all of the classes and other things we've been talking about, what about programs at the museum for 2022? We do have an exciting schedule of programs as well. And, and one thing that we learned during the pandemic is that there are some ways to, for lack of a better term, pandemic-proof your programming and make it to where, you know, there's an understanding from the beginning that, you know, we may have to have people sitting at different tables or you might not be able to, you know, have a big group on this tour. But, you know, programming in general, we have two two big things I'm excited about. One is a partnership with the Filipino-American, Philippi, Louisiana-Philippines Historic Society. There we go. And it is uh, and, and in partnership with the Philippines Consulate here in New Orleans. It is a very not well-known fact that the first permanent settlement of Asian Americans in the United States was just outside of New Orleans. It was a community called St. Malo, and it was Philippine sailors who decided they were no longer going to work underneath the Spanish, and so fled to the swamp and actually created what was sort of like a maroon community. So they, they jumped ship. Jumped ship and, mm-hmm. and went into the deep swamp. It's near Shell Island for, for anyone who is kind of a, a boater around here. And right next to a lot of the escaped uh, enslaved people's communities as well, the maroon communities. And it's very interesting that it's sort of like if you didn't want to get messed with, you just found the deepest part of the swamp and <laughs> built a community there because the Europeans were coming in there to try and find you. And so uh, the, the Philippines um, community has been in New Orleans literally since we started. The Spanish, you know, were very much our, our original kind of overlords here. And because of their global trade, anyone that was within kind of New Spain, including the Philippines, ended up coming through New Orleans as one of its major ports. And, and so learning this history, we got excited as the museum because we didn't know most of this, this information. And if we didn't know that this was where, you know, the influence of Filipino sort of the influence of Filipinos cuisine on New Orleans's cuisine, you know, who else would? Mm-hmm. So the partnership is great. The Philippines consulate is in Houston, but we have an honorary consul here in New Orleans uh, named Robert Romero, who has been a wonderful partner for us. And he's introduced us to all sorts of interesting members of what is called the Filipino diaspora here in Louisiana. And it's spread all over. It's not just New Orleans. There's a big Filipino community in Shreveport because of the military base there. There's a pretty good-sized community in Lafayette and in Baton Rouge. And so it's the goal, or I guess the idea is, is to create um, the largest archive of Filipino food uh, objects, menus, recipe books, Things used in communal celebrations. Journals, whatever journals, people might have. Whatever, mm-hmm. Exactly. Whatever people might have that is related to food. 
that we're going to collect for our library that is now in Chalmette, which is just a few minutes down the road from St. Malo. So in theory, someone interested in the Filipino influence on the cuisine of New Orleans can visit us at the archive and our library and see some of these materials, then actually go to the site of St. Malo and, and see where the community once stood. It was destroyed by a hurricane, so there is no more St. Malo to see, but there is a historic marker, and you can get a sense of just how isolated it was, which I think is the most exciting part. You look at it and think, wow, how did people live here? And then you realize that to be free, that's where they had to live, and there's something very neat about that. Okay, so besides the Philippines so that's a great one. And then another partnership that we created, and, and these partnerships are something that, you know, if you were a, a follower of SOFAB, expect to see more of. Because I, I think we definitely learned during the pandemic that there's just no reason to do things alone. We would like to have a partner for any activity that we do. One, because it's, it's better community work to have other people involved in what we're doing and to kind of know what we're up to and to contribute. But also it just it allows us to tap into audiences and people that we would probably not otherwise be able to meet because, you know, food can be very specific. And so the example I'll give is, is we are doing a year of American whiskey here at SoFab. Every third Saturday, we will have a whiskey tasting at our, in the museum. We'll be serving some specialty cocktails at the bar, and then our chefs and residents will be providing some snacks and small bites to kind of go along with that. That's 2 to 5 o'clock, third Saturday of the month. And we are partnering with the New Orleans Bourbon Festival. And it's great because I don't know how we would have been able to reach the five or 600 people in New Orleans who are the most enthusiastic about bourbon. Now I know how. It's through their email list. <laughs> and because we've partnered, we are able to work together. So our, you know, substantial email list, you know, it's probably 30 or 30, 30 or 40,000 at this point. But many of our fans and friends are not just national but international. And so being able to tap into a direct community of interest like the bourbon lovers of New Orleans creates a base. Mm -hmm. But then we can build on that base through these events where people are going to come. They'll experience the bourbons. They'll experience the whole you know, sort of tasting environment, learn a little bit about the product. And, and we think that that will allow you know, a base of bourbon enthusiasts, but then all of the other people who might just be somewhat interested you know, will be able to come in here and there. And learn a little bit learn more. Learn a little bit, and then maybe by the end of the year, we'll have that many more bourbon enthusiasts. <laughs> so it's, it's a really neat way to, to bring people together. I, I think our first three, it's Jim Beam and Old Forester and Maker's Mark. And I, that Jim Beam, I know, is first. And then I think it's Maker's and Old Forester. And you can check our website to find out exactly. So in, in terms of bourbon, isn't there something coming for the Kentucky exhibit also that should be arriving in 2022? That is one other thing that we have been working on, Liz, and thank you for – we have so much going on that it's almost hard to keep it all straight. It's amazing there's only like three of us here. The Bourbon Fest, a part of our Bourbon Festival partnership is working with a group in Kentucky that has – they have an exhibit in the Kentucky Distillers Association's kind of museum, and then it's also spread out around Louisville called Whiskey Unfiltered. And or maybe Unfiltered Truth, the history of whiskey, there's something in there. But the idea is that over time, um, the idea of a whiskey person, you know, it was very much like a country white guy, you know, out there, man in the still, doing their thing. And that's somewhat ahistorical because especially with some of the larger brands whose names you know now, they have been around since the days of slavery. And many of their workforce was originally enslaved people. So many of the master distillers of the old school 
were enslaved or formerly enslaved African Americans. And there's something sort of sad that that legacy has sort of been ignored. And when you think of Jack Daniels, you don't think of Uncle Nearest, who is actually making the product. You think of the guy on the bottle. But the guy in the bottle is really just a face. And and the product itself, you know, came from the experience and loving hands of, of someone else entirely. And it was a great way for the folks in Kentucky to sort of reconnect Kentuckians with the history of their, their sort of most famous product. And we wanted to bring that to New Orleans so that when people came to see our Kentucky exhibit, they could also get a sense of what the actual history of whiskey was. And so as we do this Year of American Whiskey, part of that will be a revamp of the Kentucky exhibit to include some of the um, information and artifacts and archival material that's been gathered up in Kentucky for this exhibit. We're also going to have a little section on the connections between the whiskey business in, in Kentucky and New Orleans. New Orleans was the sort of the major port of exit for all of that whiskey, and there are still conversations about whether bourbon is called bourbon because of Bourbon County, Kentucky, or Bourbon Street. And we could do a whole podcast on that, <laughs> but um, we'll leave it at that. But just to say that come see us, and we'll tell you which one's the true story. But it's it's very neat, again, to to be able to reach out like this and to not only connect the dots between the history of whiskey, who produced the whiskey, how the whiskey was produced, but then also having people get a better understanding of just how connected New Orleans was as the busiest port in not just America but the world at the time of, that we're speaking, pretty much everything came through here, either up or down, whether it was you know coffee and bananas going up or whiskey going down and then out, it all came through. And, and so to just further reinforces that New Orleans, people know they love to eat here, they know they like to visit here, but they really don't know why. <laughs> and, and this is, again, one of those great ways to explain why you like New Orleans so much is that we were the home of bourbon outside of Kentucky. And the bourbon here was a little different anyway because mm-hmm. it was barreled. Because it was barrel-aged. Yes. Nobody else had barrel-aged That's whiskey right. because it didn't ride on a flat boat all the way down. Yes. And then the stories of the guys that rode those boats down <laughs> then walked back to Kentucky are in and of themselves another whole podcast. Right. But there was no greater insult in New Orleans than to call somebody a Kentuck uh-huh. back then. That uh-huh. was uh, the dregs of society was when you called somebody that. So... I know that we can't really talk about 2022 till its end because it's still an evolving situation. But any special plans for uh, kids' programs? I do know that we are going to extend camp to be all day. Um, In the past, we have done camp up until lunch and then sent the children home. And we sat down to think about it. And one, we had gotten requests from parents to extend it because for them, you know, noon is not quite long enough. A school day type set of hours is what they were looking for. But also, you know, as a museum and and having the program, doing the full day just gives us the ability to do much more education with the kids. Mm-hmm. Right now, it seems like we're always rushing at the end there to get lunch down before the kids have to leave. Now it can be a much more, I don't want to say leisurely, because nothing is leisurely with six-year-olds, but it can be a much more leisurely pace of, of how everything is done so that it doesn't feel like we're cramming things into four hours, mm-hmm. but instead really filling six or seven hours with lots of great activities. And then our hope is to send the kids home with a little snack every day. 
And in that way, you know, it eliminates us another stop for the parents. Right. But also, you know, if that last activity is to make some cookies to take home or to make a little candy to take home or whatever it is. Something to share with something the family. Something to share with the family. Exactly. Yeah. It, it gives our kids the ability to go home and kind of show what they've been learning and what they've been doing in a way that is probably more difficult if they have to go home and, and kind of do it all in their own kitchen. Right. Once they're used to doing it in our kitchen, it's, it's, it's easy to send them home with some stuff. And so I'm excited about that just from a... I think it's really going to develop, you know, deeper connections with children in New Orleans. And and from the beginning, kids' education has been important for us because if you think about it, if kids aren't learning to cook, there is no way to pass down culinary traditions. Right. They just end. And you can kind of see some of that with the generation, you know, in between you and I where nobody knows how to cook because they are the sort of convenience food generation of microwaves and package things and everything else. And, and so, you know, as we get this new generation coming in, I think it's really important that they learn from the beginning that cooking with fresh ingredients matters and that, you know, it's it's not just good for you, it's good for all of us. Well, and we, we have a garden that the kids can actually pick their, at least their herbs and, and spices from, if not their, their vegetables. If not their vegetables. Yeah, if I haven't gotten to the tomatoes first. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But uh, yeah, staff it's, rating staff, the garden. Yes, exactly. Yes. Hey, at least it's us. <laughs> um, but it's 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 exciting to be able to do more. And then you know, beyond the the camp, which will run in June and July, we will have at least two kids' activities a month during. A, and I don't know exactly when we start. I know during Jenny, the regular school during the regular year. school year, Jenny Merrill, our education director, has all of this on our website. So if you're sitting there thinking, "Man, I want my kids to go to camp or to the regular things," just visit sofab.org, southernfood.org, and uh, you'll be able to see on our calendar when these things are taking place. Well, thanks, Brent. We'll have to do this again after uh, the beginning of the year so that uh, any new plans we can discuss. But thanks for being with us on Tip of the Tongue. My pleasure. And, and, you know, we can do this again in a year, and then you can fact-check me. That's right. See see what we actually did. (laughs) See what sort of new challenges presented themselves. And I appreciate the opportunity, though. I do love talking about what we're up to, and it is always a pleasure to be on Tip of the Tongue. Thanks so much, Liz. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.